0: as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp, Take your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. If you forgot your Bible this morning, there's one right in the seat in front of where you're sitting. It's a black hardbound book. Feel free to borrow that and take it with you if you don't have a Bible and need it. We're on page 48. That's Exodus chapter 6. A very exciting weekend for a lot of reasons. A good sports weekend, right? If you follow the Braves, they had a great win last night. A lot of the local teams won. And, And if you're at home this morning, Because you overslept, we'll forgive you this one time, but we'll see you back next Sunday morning, okay? We know a lot of you are up late. I saw social media people posting, and and we celebrated like so many others, but I couldn't help but thinking last night as our family, uh, we were kind of jumping up and down, celebrating with that final out, as I know probably some of you were as well. I, I always think about sports, and I love sports. I'm a diehard sports fan. Grew up watching it, love it still. We'll probably watch it until the day the Lord takes me home. But I always uh, enjoy cheering and going to games, and, and I'm, I'm always reminded when we go through these times of celebration, that sports are fun, and, and I'm not preaching to get sports. I like them, and I'm for them, and I'm going to celebrate them. But man, the excitement we had last night reminds me of the excitement we'll one day have when we see Jesus face to face. And that celebration. can you imagine? And, when I, and I cheer when a, a shortstop throws a ball to first base that loudly. How much more am I going to cheer when I see Christ in his glory and his majesty? And that's what I love about this book. I love preaching through the book of Exodus because it just shows us time and time again, the majesty of the Lord. And we've seen already so much. We've learned so much about the Lord and so much about who Jesus is gonna be. We'll see that again this morning. But we haven't even really gotten to some of the bigger stories. We, we've seen the burning bush. We haven't even gotten to the plagues. We'll, we'll start that next week. We haven't even gotten to the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and the giving of the Ten Commandments and the pillar of fire in the wilderness and Moses going up on the mountain and the, the glory of the Lord descending over the mountain as fire and smoke. We haven't gotten to those stories and already we're seeing the power and the majesty and the glory of the Lord. We're going to continue to see that through the book of Exodus. And so one of my prayers for you in this process is that you'll see that glory and you'll get just a, a taste just a glimpse of exactly who the Lord is and exactly who Christ is. We've kind of already seen, and I've explained this time and time again, we've already seen that the Lord is painting for us in the Old Testament a picture of who Christ is going to be. Now, if you don't know this, let me just give you a little bit of quick history. The book of Exodus takes place probably 1,500 years or so before the birth of Jesus. So when Moses writes this book, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. When he's writing this, he doesn't know who Jesus is gonna be. He doesn't know when he's gonna come. He doesn't know how he's gonna live. He doesn't really know any of the details about Jesus. He knows that one day Messiah will come. That's what the Jewish people understood from the beginning. He knows that the Lord one day will receive, and send a savior for us to receive. But Moses doesn't know anything about him yet. But it's, it's wonderful to me And it's a beautiful picture how the Lord builds within the story glimpses of who Christ is. Glimpses of what Jesus is gonna become. And so we're we're imagine painting a portrait of Jesus. We get a little bit at a time in the Old Testament. And as you study more and more, that picture becomes clearer and clearer until the birth of Christ in Matthew, and we see once and for all exactly who the Savior of the world is going to be. But this is no exception this morning. We're looking ahead to Jesus, and as we get kind of a a clearer picture this morning, I pray it encourages you, and I really pray it builds your faith, because we we need to understand there is a theme that runs from the beginning to the end of this. This isn't some uh, disjointed group of stories that are unrelated. These are 66 books that tell a story of Jesus from the beginning all the way through until the end. And so we paint that picture and see it more and more clearly this morning. Let's go ahead and jump into Exodus chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verse 1. You can follow along in the Bible or you can follow along on the screen as well. Exodus 6 verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Very significant. Verse 4. I also established my covenant with him to give them the land of Canaan. The land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. We're going to stop there, give you some truth. I want you to see point number one here. This is significant. And if we didn't kind of stop and point it out, you might miss it. But I want you to see number one the names of the Lord, because the names of the Lord are significant. Right, the names of the Lord matter. In fact, in verse 2, as the Lord is speaking to Moses, he says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But listen, there's an interesting phrase at the end of verse 2. Pull up verse 2 because I want you to see it. I don't want you to miss it. If you weren't, uh, if we we didn't stop and I draw your attention to it, you might read right past it, right? He says, I spoke to Moses, said to him, I'm the God. Uh, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Watch. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, an interesting phrase. What's the Lord mean to this? I mean by this? I didn't make myself known to them. I want to think through that in just a minute, and I want to think about the names of the Lord and how they watch, how they mattered to the people of Israel back then, how they still matter today. Now, names to us are significant, but not as significant as they were in the times of the Bible. In fact, in, in Old Testament times, especially Hebrew names came with great tradition. And so when someone was named something in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, it had great significance. It meant something. And people even changed their names like Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis to reflect their faith and to reflect their character and their nature and their identity. One writer said it like this. In the Bible, the names of God have meaning. Through revealing his name to his people, God revealed his nature and character in a series of increasing self-revelations. Now just a little bit of kind of biblical history here. You probably already know this, but the Bible wasn't written in English, right? New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew, and one of the things we miss in translation are the names of God, because when we read in the Old Testament the Lord or God, we see that just as one name. What you might not know is that oftentimes in the Old Testament, God uses very specific names of himself at very specific moments that point to his character, to his attributes, to his nature. And so when we read the word Lord, we don't understand the significance that the Hebrew people would have understood. So I'm going to give you just a little taste of that to help you understand what the Lord is saying to Moses here in Exodus 6, what he said about Jesus in these passages, what he's still saying to us now. Now the word Elohim is kind of a general name for the Lord. So if you were to read through the ancient Hebrew and if you were to learn Hebrew and come to that word Elohim, it's a simple kind of generic name for deity. But the Lord, when he spoke to Moses, does something different. He doesn't at the burning bush use the word Elohim. Instead, he uses the very personal pronoun Yahweh, very personal name Yahweh, which is a different idea altogether. Instead of kind of this distant Lord, instead of this distant God, he uses the name Yahweh, which is a very personal, very personal private name that he used for himself to the people of Israel. Now was a holy name. In fact, for the people of Israel, it was so holy, they wouldn't even speak it. Right? They wouldn't even use the name Yahweh. In fact, they used the word Adonai instead that referred to the Lord. And so when you see in your translations of the Bible, and not all of them do this, but if you see in your translation of the Bible the word Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. That's a very specific personal name. Now, here's what one, one writer said about this God revealed Himself as the eternal God who is self existent unchangeable and transcendent. I am with you, ready to save and to act just as I have always been. The name Yahweh implies God's intimate presence and desire to serve and to act on behalf of his people, right? So let's make this connection here. This is important. Let's make this connection. We don't serve a God who's an unknown deity, Elohim. We don't serve a God who kind of sits on a throne and doesn't really care about us. There's a lot of misunderstandings specifically about the God we serve. I think some people look at the Lord and think of him as this, uh, f- this, this figure in the universe that sits on a throne and, and maybe created everything but doesn't care anything about who we are. All right, and every now and then he looks down and sees us, and we're just kind of peons, and we don't do something right. He throws a bolt of lightning at us, right? That's not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, when we understand the names of the Lord, when we understand Yahweh, we understand it wasn't this insignificant, unpersonal deity. It was a personal God that wanted a personal relationship with his people. Now, I want you to notice we're going to tie this together now. The word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is very closely related to the Hebrew verb to be. And we remember that when the Lord spoke to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus Exodus chapter 3, he said, say to the people, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Yahweh is this personal intimate name it relates this idea of being i was i am i always will be far from elohim this distant god that lives out somewhere in the universe we serve a god that cares about us that loves us that desires to be in relationship with us now that ought to change if you've never understood that the way you view the lord it ought to change the way you view view your relationship with him It really ought to change the way you think and maybe the way you pray and maybe the way you study. It's not a distant, uncaring God. It's God who's personal, who always was, who is, and who always will be. Now, that's Old Testament. You're like, that's good. I've learned something about the name of God. I've learned that it's a personal name. He wants to interact with his people. That's good. But Adam, that was, you know, what, 3,500 years ago. How does that apply to me there? Well, let's fast forward, first of all, about 1,500 years. Let's fast forward to Jesus, right? Jesus enters the scene, the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. He lives this perfect life, and he teaches throughout his life, his disciples. And oftentimes, he comes in conflict with the religious leaders. And what they want to do is trip him up. Like, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Let me ask you a series of questions to see if I can trap you in a lie. And so we see Jesus oftentimes teaching and interacting with these religious leaders. And what Jesus does is he makes a connection for us. He makes this connection that he's not just a prophet, that he's not just a good teacher. uh, He's not just some sort of a spiritual leader. He is, in fact, fully God. And so drawing on this idea of Exodus chapter three, the burning bush, drawing on this idea of Yahweh, the personal God, I was, I am, always will be, in the book of John, Jesus goes through this series of seven I am statements. I'm going to put them up on the screen because I want you to see them. They're all found in the book of John. John chapter six, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8 verse 12 Jesus said I am the light of the world. John chapter 10 verse 7 Jesus said I am the door. You see a pattern developing here? John 11:25 Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life. John 10:11 I am the good shepherd. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 15, 5, I am the vine, right? He's making this connection, the I am statements of Jesus with Jehovah, with the I am of Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. But now here's what you might be saying. Let's just tie this up real neatly and put a nice little bow on it, right? You might be thinking, well, Jesus just said these phrases because he was just living life. I mean, I use the phrase I am all the time too. I am hungry, I am going to work. You fill in the blank, right? We use those all the time. What if Jesus just said those things and he just really didn't mean anything by it and we're adding into this more than he actually meant? What if Jesus wasn't really claiming to be fully God? Well, John chapter eight answers that question for us because in verse 56 and following, Jesus having a conversation with the religious leaders and they're debating him again and they're trying to catch him in a lie. And they're asking very specific questions. So John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus now is speaking. I want you to listen to what he says. He's speaking to the religious Jewish leaders. He says, your father, Abraham, he's making the connection here, Old Testament, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, they're talking to Jesus now, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, you ready, I am. Jesus makes the connection. He's saying, listen, if there was ever a doubt of who I'm claiming to be, if there was ever a doubt after all these I am sayings, if there's ever a doubt about who I'm talking about or what I'm teaching, I want you to know, before Abraham was, I am. Now watch, you might miss this, but the Jewish leaders would have gotten it. This guy is claiming to be Jehovah. He's claiming to be the Lord. He's claiming the I am statement. He's claiming to be the God of the burning bush. He's saying that I and the Father am one, which he said repeatedly. He's making the statement that he is fully God and we know that they understood that because in the very next verse think about how they should have responded to Jesus speaking a lie like that something they didn't believe they would have been very angry the very next verse says so they the religious leaders picked up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple Jesus makes this clear claim to deity when he uses the phrase I am, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an afterthought. It was a very clear connection to 1,500 years before when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, when he used the word Jehovah, when he helped Moses understand I am your God, you are my people. There's this personal relationship with him. It's fulfilled now in Jesus. Fast forward 2,000 more years and now we have this beautiful opportunity. To accept the great I am, to love him and to trust him and follow him. Not a distant God that doesn't care, but a God that is willing now to step down out of heaven, to die on the cross, to give his life for your sins. It's a beautiful picture as we think about the names of God. Now let's continue, verse six. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel this is the Lord speaking now to Moses again I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Now we've seen the names of the Lord. We've seen how the names of the Lord help us better understand his his intimate relationship with us. They help us better understand that he's the great I am. They help us better understand the connection now that Jesus made to him and the connection we can now make to Jesus. We've seen the names of God. Here's truth number two. I want you to now see the promises of the Lord. The names of the Lord connect Jesus. The promises of the Lord do the same thing. Now, I'm going to reread verses 6 through 8. And if you're taking notes in your Bible and want to underline these, you can do so. But I'm going to highlight a phrase that happens seven different times down these few verses. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And here it is, the first one. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And verse seven, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse eight, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Now, the big picture of Exodus is the glory of the Lord. It's the majesty of the Lord. It's his power. It's him choosing to take his people from slavery to salvation. He's going to do it with a mighty hand, the Bible says, with an outstretched arm. Right? We kind of know what's coming here. We understand the plagues are just around the corner. They're going to start in verse, chapter 7. We'll get to that next week. But God's going to remind Moses here of his majesty and his power and exactly what he's going to do for the people of Israel. Now, here's the fascinating thing to me. God, all these centuries ago, is going to lay out very clearly what he's going to do for the people of Israel He's going to lay out very clearly for them how he's going to save them from bondage and from slavery and deliver them to land flowing with milk and honey. But while he does that, in the midst of him doing that, he's also going to lay out exactly what Jesus Christ is going to do for us now in salvation. So as he's saving the people of Israel, he's also explaining to them exactly what Christ is going to accomplish for them thousands of years later. And I want you to see this. I want you to understand it, right? Right. So we're looking at the promises of God. And within these I will statements, there's seven I will statements. Within those are four major promises. We're going to pull those up one at a time. Go am going to pull, pull the first promise up. The first promise that the Lord gives us here is a promise of liberation. Now, I want you to listen. In verse 6, there are two I wills. Both of them speak to liberation. The Lord said, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. God says, listen, I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to free you. I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. Now, the definition of salvation is basically deliverance from harm or ruin or loss. So the Lord is saying to the people of Israel, listen, I'm going to liberate you, I'm going to bring you out, I'm going to save you from the bondage of slavery. Now fast forward to our lives right now, the Lord Jesus Christ still offers to liberate us. Did you know that? Now it might be from something physical, that there might be a physical bondage or an addiction or something in your life that you need deliverance from, but it's most certainly spiritual Jesus says, I'm still the liberator. I'm still going to free you from the bondage of sin. And so as the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel, as he's speaking to them in bondage and captivity in Egypt, he's saying, I will save you. I will liberate you from slavery. He's now speaking to us through Jesus. I will liberate you from your sins. So we got this first connection point, right? What the Lord did for the people of Israel 3,500 years ago, he's still doing for us today through Christ. He liberates us. Here's the second promise, redemption. God promises to redeem. Let me read verse 6 again. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians And I will deliver you from slavery to them, right? The idea of liberation. And I will, here it is, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, right? He's going to liberate, then he's going to redeem. Now, redemption in the Old Testament, especially, is a financial term and typically is used when slaves were involved. Now, slavery back then was very different than we think of it now. Slavery back then oftentimes was a way for you to get out of debt. And so if you owed somebody a lot of money, you could sell yourself into slavery. If you owed some money and maybe you couldn't afford it, they could actually get you and bring you into slavery, and you could work out the debt through being a slave. And so it's not uncommon in the Old Testament for people to be enslaved because they owed something to somebody. And so the word redemption has got a very specific financial meaning. It's the idea of buying back. So when you redeemed somebody, you bought them back from slavery. So you offered money, you actually bought them back, you paid the price necessary to free them from their slavery. So when the Lord is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's talking about redemption, he's talking about buying them back from their slavery, he's also helping us look ahead to what Christ is going to do. Because Jesus not only liberates us, but he redeems us. Here's what Ephesians 1, 7 says. Speaking of Jesus, in him, that's Jesus, we have, here it is, the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Right, Christ redeems us. Right, What Jesus accomplished on the cross when he gave his life for our sins, he redeemed us. He paid the price for our sins. He bought us back. Right? So we see this picture of the Lord promising the people of Israel, I'm going to liberate you, free you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to buy you back. The same things that Jesus will do for us today. Now let's continue. Look at verse 7. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. The I will statements again. I will now take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Here's the third promise we see, adoption, right? There's liberation, there's redemption, now there's adoption. The Lord says very simply, listen, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to be your God. There's this personal intimate relationship. You were on the outside, but because of my great love for you, I'm going to adopt you now into my family. Now, you may not know this, but November is National Adoption Month. We have a lot of families in our church that have adopted. we got a lot of really cool stories about how the Lord has worked or is in the process of working. So we kind of prayed as a team about what to do this month and how to highlight those stories and kind of connect people to what the Lord's doing in the hearts of our people here at the church. And so we're going to spend really the whole month of November highlighting the idea of adoption. And you're going to hear a lot of stories You're going to hear from people that have adopted. You're going to hear the story of their children. You're going to see how the Lord has worked. And one of the things we want to try to do is connect families. And so if you have adopted or maybe you're in the process Maybe you're kind of praying through, thinking through what adoption might look like for you. Maybe you know at some point in the future, this is something I'm thinking about, but I'm not quite certain. If you're kind of in that space, I think the month of November is going to be really good for you. Because one of the things we want to do is kind of highlight and challenge and encourage you. But we also want to connect you. And so if you're in the process of thinking, we want to connect you with a family that has already adopted. So you're going to be hearing a lot more about that. There's going to be kind of a special announcement on November the 7th, the first Sunday of November, uh, that we've kind of made this decision to very tangibly be involved and kind of help out families that are in the process of adopting. And so if that's you, you kind of pray through that and kind of look with anticipation to the month of November. We're going to talk a lot more about that, but I, I love this idea of adoption because it's exactly. What the Lord did for the people of Israel, but it's exactly what Jesus does for us today. The Bible says we've been adopted into his family. If you think about adoption, adoption happens when there's a child that's in need that has no way of helping him or herself. Salvation's the same thing, isn't it? Jesus reaches down to a sinner in need who has no chance by himself of being saved. And the Lord, in his great love, grabs that sinner, liberates that sinner, redeems that sinner, adopts that sinner into the family of God. So as again, we're reading what the Lord's gonna do to the people of Israel, it's a clear, probably the clearest up to this point picture of exactly what salvation is gonna be through Jesus Christ. And there's one final one, look at verse eight. Exodus chapter six, verse eight. The Lord says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Here's the first, fourth major truth, the idea of possession, right? So we've got liberation, we've got redemption, we've got adoption, we've got possession. You need to understand something about the Lord. When he saved these people from slavery, he didn't just leave them on their own. He didn't let them just wander for the rest of their lives, not having any sense of what they ought to be doing. The Lord saves them from something to something else. In the case of the people of Israel, he's promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. Started back in in the story of Abraham and what the Lord promised to his descendants, right? I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this inheritance. I'm not simply going to save you and then leave you on your own, right? I'm going to actually give you this possession of this land. It's the same thing that we read about today when we think about the idea of salvation. God saves us from something, that's sin and self, and he saves us to something else, living a life glorifying him, right? We kind of miss this sometimes. I think far too many Christians see salvation as fire insurance, right? So I've I've got my ticket punched. You know, I've got my fire insurance policy. I'm going to stick that in my back pocket and then I just do what I want to do because I've been saved and then I'm just going to kind of wander on my own for the rest of my life. That's not what the scripture teaches. We've been saved from something, but we've also been saved to something. When God saved the Israelites out of slavery, he moved them into the promised land, the land he promised to possess for them, right? When God saves us now, when Christ saves us now, he saves us from the sin and bondage of our lives. He liberates us, redeems us, adopts us, but he promises us this possession of living a life to bring him glory now, eventually looking to heaven as our final home. And I've talked about this before, and I think maybe the older I get, the more I kind of think about this, what heaven one day will be like. But we have to understand, I I, I think we just need to be very clear about this. This is not our home. God didn't promise us possession of this earth. That's not our end goal. We're here for what seems like a smaller amount of time, right? The older we get, it kind of moves pretty quickly. We got a small space, a sliver of time we're given, and we're given that to bring Him honor and to bring Him glory. But the bulk of our lives will be spent in eternity. God has promised us a place, and inheritance. He says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Watch. To an inheritance. That's what we're looking for. That is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Here's how one writer explained it. From the beginning to the end, every aspect of the Exodus was accomplished by God and by God alone. God promised to bring his people out of Egypt to free them from bondage He promised to take them to himself and make them his own. He promised to give them a land for their possession. The only thing left for the Israelites was to know him as their Savior and Lord, as God almost promised they would do. It's a picture. That's one of the reasons I love preaching through books, and especially the Old Testament. God has given us this beautiful picture of salvation, written right into the text of Exodus chapter 6 you ever wondered if God's got a story for your life, you don't have to go a whole lot farther than this book. Really, from the beginning to end, it's filled with his glory and his majesty. It's filled with his plan. It's filled with the story of Jesus. He was at work then, he's at work now. So if you're the person that's come this morning, you say, listen, I, I hear this, I know this, it's very interesting. I've never quite seen the, the, this such a clear picture of salvation in the Old Testament. But I've done that, praise the Lord. I've accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Then I want to just encourage you to remember the goodness of your salvation, because a lot of times we kind of get over that, don't we? We forget how good the Lord is. We, we forget what it was like to not be a believer. We forget what it was like to be outside of the will of the Lord or not adopted or not redeemed. So just remember his goodness, remember his majesty, praise his name for that. If you're here this morning or maybe you're watching from home and you say, I've never done this. I've never really been told that I need to be redeemed or, or liberated or, or adopted or I've got this possession one day of heaven and the glory of the Lord. I've never done that. Then I'd like this to be that day. I'd like you to think very seriously, because you need to understand something. You're going to come face to face one day with the Lord. Whether you believe it or not, it is true. and you're going to be held account. And you're not going to be able to say, "I was good enough or smart enough or nice enough, or I went to church a couple times or I gave enough money. You're going to have to speak about what Christ has done in your life. And if you don't have a personal relationship with Him, you can't do it. And So I'm going to be down here in just a minute. We're going to have this opportunity of invitation. It's going to give you a chance to pray, sing, respond. But I'm going to be down here. If you want to know more about Christ, if you want to know more about salvation, then just kind of step out, walk down this aisle, come talk to me, and I'll share with you all that Jesus can do for your life. All right? Let me pray for us now. We're going to be done. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture. I just, Lord, am more and more amazed at who you are your glory and your majesty, and how you've had a plan from the beginning, Lord. From the beginning, you laid it out for us right there. Help us to see that. Help, help that to, to build our faith and encourage us more. But beyond that, Father, help us to figure out a way to bring you glory, to live for you. If there's somebody here this morning that's never prayed to receive you, Lord, just break their heart this morning of their need for a Savior, for their need, Lord, to be liberated and redeemed and adopted and have this possession one day of heaven with you. Father, use this time to do great things for the sake of your kingdom. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.